Well, as we, uh, as we get started, uh, can, I, uh, can I share from my heart for a minute, uh, which is always uh, a little scary uh, to, to go off script, uh, but just to um, tag on to what, to what Cindy said, uh, we, we have fallen in love with this church. Um, we, we visited a lot of different churches uh, when we first moved to the area, which was really weird uh, coming into pastoral ministry. Uh, typically, when you're a pastor, you attend the church that you pastor, right? It's kind of frowned upon if you don't. But with this position that we're in with the district, uh, we got to choose the church that we got to attend. And so it really opened our eyes to what it's like to look for a church. It was really a healthy exercise for us, gave us eyes that we had never had before to see what it was like um, to be somebody that uh, needed a church home, that was looking for a family, looking for a place uh, where we could, uh, yeah, be fed, but a place where we could contribute and help as well. And, uh, and we felt drawn to this church. Um, and, uh, and, and the only thing we could say at the time was we felt drawn to help Andrew and Simone. And we told them that, uh, that that's why we felt we had been called here. Uh, that looks a lot different now. <laughs> thought it was going to be like, you know, singing on the praise team or something like that, you know. Um, but I want to I say from a, from a district maybe. Uh, perspective, that I've been so impressed by your church, our church, that um, the way you've rallied around our pastor, the way you've supported him and his family through this, um, there, there is no playbook for this. You know that, right? Uh, there's no uh, call that comes into the district ministry center where we go, oh, that's what he's going through. Here's how you handle that situation. Everybody's doing their best. And your congregation has rallied around them and loved them, whether it's Team Twible, picking up extra hours in the office, doing volunteer things, coming and helping them at their house. It's been amazing to watch. Your, your staff has been phenomenal. Uh, your staff has picked up the load in so many places just to keep things, not just to keep things going, actually. Ministry is moving forward in the midst of all of this. And so uh, be, be thankful for that. Um, your lay leadership council. Um, probably the strongest group of lay leaders I've ever seen in a church. Having to make incredibly difficult calls, having to uh, try to keep everything, uh, keep the communication good, making sure the right information is getting to the right people at the right time, that's really tough to do. Tom, you've been phenomenal at what you're doing there. And, uh, and so as you see these people in the congregation, as you see your lay leadership council members, in fact, uh, lay leadership council members, will you stand if you're in the room? Because not, not everybody knows who you are. If you're on the lay leadership council, go ahead and stand. Yeah. yeah. You can sit down now, Jim. It's not about you. Not about you. Okay. Tom sat down a lot sooner than you did. Um, they deserve that applause, but seriously, I wanted you to be able to see their faces. I want you to be praying for them as they, as they navigate these waters, because like I said, no one knows. No one knows how to do stuff like this. Everybody's doing their best, so thank you for, for loving each other, uh, for being the church to each other, and, uh, and that's all good stuff. And uh, evidently, you're stuck with me now for a while, so we'll have, uh, we'll have a good time uh, for as long as we need to have a good time.
So last week, we began a series entitled Selah, Pause and Reflect. Uh, we discussed our need to recenter, right? Uh, but before we could do that, we had to know what center was. We had to, to know that we have to find our identity in Christ. We don't seek the affirmation of people. We don't look for validation in the world. The, the one and only place that we turn, especially in times of struggle, is God. We talked about lament. We know that we live in a broken world. We know that we're going to experience hard times. And lament suggests that the one and only place in person to express our uncensored feelings to is God. Laments are directed to God. They ask heartfelt questions. They say things that are real and raw and are at our core so that we can begin to respond to situations instead of react to situations. They offer us the opportunity to return to praise. We concluded with the understanding that we are God's children. We are his creation. We cry out to him. Know that he hears us and trust that he's working. The opportunity to uh, recenter and even to lament comes because we take time to pause, evaluate our life's circumstances, step away from the busyness, and, and try not to rush so much. And that's where this term Selah comes in. Uh, kind of a funny thing, I was uh, reflecting on last Sunday, uh, looking at, at what my notes uh, said, kind of what I prepared versus what I shared. It uh, doesn't always match up, you know, <laughs> the things that you prepared don't always end up being the things that you share. And uh, I realized I completely bypassed a portion of my message uh, that talked about this word Selah, what it means. And so we just kind of left that hanging out there, and I'm glad that you guys went with it, uh, but we didn't talk at all about what Selah means, so let's do that for a second. Uh, this word Selah, it appears 71 times in the book of Psalms. It, it appears at a, a break in the text. You'll notice like a, a, a set of, uh, of sentences and then a break, and it says the word Selah, then a little more, and then Selah. Its meaning is not fully known. Uh, some people think maybe it's a musical term, like a musical interlude, uh, a rest for musicians, a pause in the singing for narration. But any time we find it, we can note that it brings about a break in the action, a pause, maybe a time to reflect, to think about the words that are being sung or spoken. We need that in our lives. Selah. The Psalms hold a special value. Do you ever notice how you can kind of find yourself in the Psalms? Maybe you hear your own prayer in the things that you're reading. It helps you to know that you're not alone. In our struggles, it's easy to feel like uh, we're the only person that's ever faced something. Do you ever feel that way? I'm the only person that's ever gone through this. Nobody else has ever had this struggle in the history of humanity. I'm the only one. But when we when we find out that, oh, I'm, I'm not the only one, it kind of brings peace. And we find that a lot in the Psalms. They're a wonderful reminder that we're not alone. We all go through ups and downs. And today we're going to look at a psalm that was very helpful to me during a downtime. That was Psalm 62. The theme of Psalm 62 is that God is our sure and certain refuge. The words express a strong confidence in God. The psalmist thought to be David cannot emphasize too strongly the absolute security of him who puts his trust in the Lord. Humbly, trustingly, 
David commits his cause to God, knowing that God is all-powerful and also full of mercy. So let's pray, and then we're going to read that scripture. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your spirit that's with us. Thank you for the songs that have been sung, for the words that have been spoken, that have brought us to this point, to help us to remember that we come into this place to encounter you. We don't come for really any other reason. We want to be in an affirmation to the people around us, but that's because of what you do in our lives. We, we want to leave this place changed, but that's because of what you do in our lives. So as we, as we go about what we do in this service, in the times after the service, in the conversations we have, let you, will, will you just empower it at all? Will, will you help us to sense your spirit through this time? And may every word that's spoken here be words that come directly from you. It's in your name we ask it. Amen. So Psalm 62, 12 verses, and I want to read this. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. So in these first four verses, we find the test of trusting God. A person whose soul finds rest in God alone is one who has learned through experience that God is an adequate refuge and that he will never fail his own. Uh, this got me thinking about an old uh, hymn. How many people know uh, the hymn, He Never Has Failed Me Yet? Show of hands. Yeah, we got some of those. Uh, do, you, do you remember the chorus of that? Sing that with me. He never has failed me yet. He never has failed me yet. I have proven him true. What he says he will do. He never has failed me yet. Yeah, I don't like that song. <laughs> Can I tell you why? It leaves room to think that God might fail us at some point. He never has failed me yet. <laughs> but give it time, and he just might. He's never going to. I mean, the song really should be called, He's Never Failed Me and He Never Will. But it doesn't really roll off the tongue, so we can't sing it that way. 
But I get the message of the song. God proves himself faithful time and time again in our lives. But we have to have eyes to see it. We have to be cautious to not label something as a coincidence. God is at work. And when God shows himself, we have to remember these times. The moments of God's proven faithfulness set a foundation for future opportunities to trust. You know, I'd, uh, I like the, uh, the Sean Standard version of what you shared uh, earlier. Peter, uh, Peter in the boat, and, and Jesus comes walking on the water, right? And, and Peter notices that. And like, we bypass that whole part. So Jesus is walking on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. <laughs> like, kind of a big deal there. And Peter notices that and says, if that's you, call me. And what does Jesus say? Come. And so Peter does. And, uh, and as, as Sean said, he, he falls. He gets distracted. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he falls. But what I got to thinking about this week is, uh, why did Peter step out of the boat? What would give him the idea that the water was going to hold him up? I mean, he's not Jesus. He's Peter. He's a fisherman. He's been in boats. He knows what happens when you fall out of a boat. You sink. What gave Peter confidence was that the disciples had seen Jesus work. Peter knew what Jesus was capable of doing. Jesus called him, so Peter faithfully stepped out. See, it's so much easier to step out of the boat when you know who's calling you, isn't it? Can you think of the times in your own life where God proved himself faithful? And isn't it easier each following time to trust that he's going to be faithful again, that he's going to stay true to his word. I was taught early on in my ministry to kind of bank these thoughts, write them down, type them out, do whatever you have to do so that you don't forget the times where God was faithful to you. That way, when you're going through the tough times, you have a place to go to tangibly remember the goodness of God in your own personal life. Someone who can trust when all seems to be going wrong with a settled submission to God, one who rests in his promises, one who obeys his rule, and one who allows the Spirit to control every part of their being. Verses 3 and 4 say, The situation doesn't look good for the psalmist. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. David's enemies thought they had him in a position where he was certain to fall, but they overlooked one thing. He had made God his refuge. He had made God his defense. And this is the key to being able to overcome tough circumstances, deciding where, to, where we turn. This is what we talked about last week, finding that center. Will you turn to yourself? Will you turn to man? Or will you turn to God? Now, it's good to note that turning to God does not mean that things are automatically going to go the way that you want them to go. Now, you might be thinking Psalm 37 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, I delight in the Lord. I'd like a Tesla. I delight in the Lord, and I want that job, because I know that job's going to be perfect for me. Or I want that house. I delight in the Lord, and I desire another Cubs World Series victory. 
and it might take divine intervention. I delight in the Lord, and I desire a happy, healthy life with no negative relationships whatsoever. See, this is where context becomes important in reading Scripture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But the next verse says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. So what happens when we commit our lives to God? We hand over full control. Our hearts are transformed. His desires become our desires. So when will God give us the desires of our heart? When, we have a, when we've committed our lives to him, and the only thing we want in this life is him and what he desires. See, God doesn't have to work on our timetable. God isn't required to do everything that we ask. Our ability to wait on God when everything appears to be going wrong reveals the level of trust that we have in him. Verses 5 through 8 speak to the security of trusting God. In these verses, we hear the psalmist state similar words to the first couple of verses, but this time he advises his own soul. Yes, my soul find rest in God. See, the first time was more of a, a statement of trust in God. My soul finds rest in God alone. But now he's, he's telling his soul, almost imploring, I must find rest in God alone. I, he's basically saying, I have to put my words into action now. He knows the truth. He knows that God is with him. But he now has to take a step. He has to move from head knowledge to heart action. Sometimes I think we know too much for our own good. We talked last week about the, the kid meltdowns and the incredible joy that brings to us as parents, right? We love, uh, we love those meltdowns that makes you go, whose kid is that? That's Ann. That's not me. That, that's all her. You know, we have so many moments of incredible joy that our kids uh, bring us. We've got the meltdowns, but, but the joys far outweigh the, the bad moments. See, I love their imaginations. I love the drawings that my kids bring to me. Uh, I like watching them read books, or they make these really weird, crazy videos. Uh, the games they make up. Uh, in our house, uh, they made up a game called Come On, Dude, in which uh, Ellie and Avery came up to me and they said, hey, Dad, we, you got to see us play this game. It's called Come On, Dude. And I was like, okay. And so Ellie grabbed one end of a jump rope and Avery grabbed the other end of a jump rope and she said, come on, dude. And they took off running around the house. It's like, wow, you guys are brilliant. And they entertained themselves for like hours playing come on, dude, you know. Clouds in the sky. I mean, the imaginations that kids have. See, I love their simplicity. It, it starts early for us, right? Buying that, that perfect toy for the first birthday or the first Christmas. Uh, we spend hours researching online, reading the reviews, making sure that this is an age-appropriate toy for a one-year-old, and now we've wrapped it using only three pieces of tape because my wife says if you're using more than three pieces of tape, you're doing it wrong. And so you've got the three pieces of tape, you've wrapped the box, and you give it to them. They can't open it because they can't do anything with their arms at that point. So you open the present for them, you take the toy out, out of the box, and what do they do? Play with the box. It's <laughs> exactly right. The simplicity. It's not about the toy. They don't care what the toy is. They just want to play with the box. We have so many things that we fill our time with as adults. I love seeing the wonder in our kids' eyes and something as simple as a rainbow 
a fire truck, a train. I love their blind faith. Our kids have no problem praying with expectation. Our kids have no problem trusting the words of God as truth. I can't count how many times I've come home and come around the corner and Jacoby's like six steps up on the stairs and he just screams, Dad! And he takes off and he jumps, trusting that I'm going to catch him. I'm good like nine out of ten. You know, <laughs> that's pretty good. Those are pretty good odds. The faith of a child. Matthew 18 says it this way. Uh, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So what's Jesus trying to convey here? That we have to act like children in order to be a follower of Jesus? I've seen some that try that route. (laughs) No, Jesus is sharing that you have to have the kind of faith and trust that a child has. The longer we live, the more we become jaded by the world. The same trust that a child has that a father will care, comfort, and protect is the same trust we should have in God. We jump knowing that our father is going to catch us. Childlike faith. To be the greatest, you must become the least. Don't get consumed by status. Instead, seek ways to live out your life in humility. In the psalm, David urges the people to put their trust in God. God not only gives salvation, he is salvation. Trust him. Humble yourself before him. Pour out your hearts. Surrender to him. Let him be your refuge. Which brings us to these last four verses in the logic of trusting God. The psalmist puts people into two categories, low-born men who are, who are but a breath, uh, the average man, their vapor, vanity, they can't be fully trusted, the high-born are but a lie, the leaders, the wise, the noble, temporarily insecure, morally false. He's acknowledging that regardless of how you categorize humanity, whether that's uh, job, family, race, political affiliation, income, house size, high-born or low-born, people are people, and people are going to let us down. God is the only one that is worthy of complete trust. Job 12 says, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Power belongs to him. Without power, he could be overthrown. He's merciful and full of love and kindness. Without mercy, no one could be saved. This brings us to our last two verses. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. We serve a capable God. We serve a powerful God. We serve a God that knows all things. We serve a God that loves you. We serve a God that loves you. Some of you need to hear that today. So much that he gave his own life for you. Trust in him. Rest in him. No matter your life's circumstances, realize that he is an unshakable 
fortress. If we're pulling in the VBS theme, he's an unsinkable ship. So, in closing, the test of trusting God, a person whose, whose soul finds rest in God alone, is one who has learned through experience that God is an adequate refuge and that he never will fail his own. Finding strength and refuge in God requires a step. But once we take that step, you can know that he will be faithful to keep your head above water. Who else can you trust like God? There is no person that is as trustworthy, powerful, capable, loving, merciful, or kind. Let him be your safe place. Whether you feel something rising up in you or you feel like you're being emptied out, he can be your strength if you'll let him.